Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Uh, We're doing a fun one today, so I went and got Sam because if we're going to talk about a ballsy woman, then I feel it should be me and Sam. Do you agree? Hello. Yes, the minute I heard the term warrior queen, I was right in there. Uh, Today with us, we've got Joanna Armand. Joanna, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Not too wet, thankfully. (laughs) Excellent. Joanna is a historian who specialises in the Anglo-Saxons and women in feudalism. She's written a biography of Ethelfled the Warrior King. Did I pronounce the name correctly, Joanna? You did. Fantastic. That was always a risk. She's here to talk to us today about her new book, Margaret of Anjou, She-Wolf of France and Twice Queen of England. So, Joanna, uh, what was Margaret's early life as a French noblewoman during the end of the Hundred Years' War? Right, so she married Henry VI when she was 15 years of age. So, yeah, he was 23. Um, honestly, the first 15 years of her life quite tumultuous her father spent a lot long time as a prisoner of war René of Anjou but believe it or not he wasn't fighting the English he was trying to regain his lands in Italy makes a change yeah he wasn't act well he was he fought the English a bit then he decided to regain his lands in Italy it got very complicated so she was basically raised by her grandmother and her mother her grandmother of course was Yolanda of Aragon who you've probably heard of she was quite formidable bit of a supporter of Joan of Arc back in the day also the mother-in-law of the king of France so she was raised in her court very literate they liked um they liked the romances of Melisende actually that's another old, good old uh, Melisende legend the fairy woman who married the Plantagenet ancestor and yes she was obviously primed to rule brought up to believe she would marry some great nobleman man but maybe not the king of England which sounds impressive, um, yes. but in the nicest possible way, Henry VI is not impressive. Uh, at least that paves the way for her to be awesome. Oh, Henry VI, yeah. What is the court like that she arrives at? The English court in, I'm just my date, sorry, 1445, which is the year she gets married. She's born in 1430. Um, 1445, <laughs> Henry's just sort of left his minority. He's 23 years old by this time, so the kings reach their majority at 21. Uh, 
things haven't started going wrong yet, but they're about to go kind of pear-shaped. The war in France has, well, there have been good points. Well, good points for the English anyway, which means victory and getting more land or protecting their lands. There have been good points, but things are starting to go France's way a lot more by the 1440s. There's recriminations. And the the thing that doesn't help is there's rumours that King Henry married Margaret without a dowry. And instead of a dowry, they give up the county of Maine. I was going to say, got her on the cheap, but that's not so bad. Yes, got her on the cheap, but then had to give up land to get her. The county of Maine and Anjou in France, and they're like, why are you paying the French to marry her and giving them back the land? Yes, orcs. (laughs) Do we know if she was happy or do we know what her life was like? Well, actually, she didn't leave France for quite a long time. There There was a marriage by proxy, which means that someone stood in for the groom when she was still in France, the actual proper marriage happened in England in um, Pitchfield Abbey, which is in Hampshire, I believe. But um, there was, it was several weeks before she actually went to England. Don't know what the illness is, but it's quite possibly anxiety or brought on by anxiety. Cause I remember she's only 15 years old. She's going to go to a foreign country, which she probably doesn't have much love, great love for the English. I mean, her, her grandmother's Yolanda of Aragon, as I say, she's a niece of the, king of france she's been raised amidst the hundred years war so she's probably very scared you're um you're in a room with two romance skeptics here so what was what was her marriage like uh in those early years before the wars of the roses kick off well her main problem is it took her so long to have a child and that was something that caused a lot of people to look down on her so it's eight years between her marriage and of her birth of her only child which is why really is it because by this point he's descended into what we think is a catatonic schizophrenic trance yes and well she's baby. about six months pregnant at that point oh okay but he just gets yes. a baby put in his arms and is like ta-da and he just obviously doesn't react because he's catatonic yes. but people are like really Martin? well again um there's something that we go into in the book is um one of the reasons she might have had trouble conceiving is she was fasting a lot of the time, which ironically she was doing to help her conceive. But obviously um, the medieval understanding of medicine, yeah, she she was fasting several days a week, possibly, which obviously wasn't helping her. And then there was stress, which, again, we, we have a better understanding now. These things, 1450 didn't help when the um, Earl of Suffolk, who had been a great friend of hers, was uh, had his head lopped off by a bunch of really annoyed people. Then kind of we barreled towards the wars of the roses now haven't we clearly (laughs) she's team lancastrians yes uh, obviously Uh, she gets this nickname of she-wolf so i know i've had a bit of a thing about the the title she-wolf that was actually something that my publisher opted for though i'm all right with it she-wolf is actually what isabella of france was called Mm. um it was Shakespeare who first up to the She-Wolf of France in Henry VI Part Two. Richard, Duke of York, calls her the She-Wolf of France. It's basically the idea of the transgressing woman, the woman who is transgressing social boundaries and acting in an unfeminine way. So is this a mark of respect or, or a bit derogatory? Definitely not a mark of respect. <laughs> you don't call someone a She-Wolf as a mark of respect. Sorry. I would. Yes. <laughs> Probably would now. No, it's basically the idea of the vicious she-wolf that attacks its own um, kind, almost. 
it is um she wolf of france yet worse than wolves of france and then he goes into this it, it, rich duke of york in the shakespeare thing goes into this whole thing about how vicious she is and how evil she is and yeah it's it's fun they're messing with history that never happens I say people say, "Oh, poor old Richard the Third is is um, vilified in Shakespeare." Margaret of Anjou gets it almost as bad, to be fair. So, in reality, what is she doing to prompt this opinion? Uh, is she popular? What that really started it was when she tried to claim the regency after her son's born, Henry in the Catonic State. So, this early fourteen fifty four, her son's born October fourteen fifty three. So, she's, he's only a couple of months old. She tries to claim the regency, which for her is quite makes sense. Lots of French women and lots of European women had been regents for underage children. And her grandmother sort of had looked after her father's lands. Her mother had acted as a regent even for a while. So she's like, yeah, why can't I do it? But this is England. We don't do female regents. So they're like, everyone's panicking at this point. It's like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, she wants to rule everything. She wants to take all the power for herself. Oh, my goodness, we can't let this happen. That's when the rumours start flying. There's a pastor letter. I think it's one of the pastor letters where it says she seeks the rule of the whole realm to make the laws and everything for herself, which, yeah, that's a bit of an exaggeration. She doesn't really want to make all the laws. So all of this, it, it puts Margaret and her son in the centre of political intrigue, doesn't it? By those both trying to save Lancastrian rule and those trying to trying to replace them. Could you talk a bit about that? Oh, yes. Uh, th- th- this is definitely something we've looked at. And um 1454 is the point where she really starts butting heads with the Duke of York for the first time, because, of course, they make him regent, not her. And, yeah, which um, doesn't... And it doesn't help that he spends almost all of his time at regent putting his favourites in power and trying to get the Duke of Somerset, who is her good friend, executed. So she's like, what is this guy up to? Sounds like Boris Johnson. Yes. At this point, she's quite worried. So not only has she been denied regent... She's having him having a go at her friends, and she, I think it's, it's a bit legally complicated. But there's a law that's being changed about it's called a resumption. It's about certain grants and privileges that the royal family is being given certain money. She's having a lot of them taken away from her, so she thinks that the duke is keeping her poor. She believes that he's possibly going to perhaps make a bid for the throne, possibly out to get her, certainly out to get the people that she likes. So I think it's this point forward, really, she started to consider him a threat. Like a good 15th century woman, she yeah. uh, knows her place and backs right down, doesn't she? Well, she no. would have done before her <laughs> son was born. Let's just say she probably would have done before her son was born, but afterwards, no, she does not back she's down. She's absolutely fit, isn't she? Yeah, after, after this point, she's like, no, I'm not backing down again. Not happening. So um, as soon as the king recovers... She encourages him to reverse everything that Richard Duke of York has done. She encourages him to um, put Somerset back in his place. And she's like, this guy's dangerous. So this is where the first Battle of St. Albans happens. It's also from this point that we start seeing Margaret get a lot more politically active. A few years later, fast forward to about 1458, 1459, she's distributing, they're called livery badges. They're sort of her insignia. To people in the Midlands and on her own lands, there's even some talk that she's raising troops, possibly to fight against the Duke of York if he rebels again. So 1460 comes along uh, and it's disastrous. 
because yes. basically Henry VI gets lifted off the battlefield and the Yorkists run away with him. Um, <laughs> so things are not going well for the Lancastrians. So Margaret is on the run now. Where does she go? What does she do? This is the thing. 1459 to 60, she actually goes for a while to the Midlands and Wales to spend time with her supporters because she's got quite there's quite a lot of a strong Lancastrian power base there. There's people like Jasper Tudor around in Wales, of course. She actually ends up in Scotland. She's in Scotland at the time of the Battle of Wakefield. She was not torturing the Duke of York personally at the Battle of Wakefield. Sorry to say Philip McGregory lovers. <laughs> yes. Um she is in Scotland making friends with the recently widowed actually Queen of Scotland and trying to raise troops for an invasion of England. So she's not spending all her time um, moping and feeling sorry for herself. She's quite active at this time. And she actually marches south with her army. She wants to get her husband back. She, they actually, she actually does manage to get Henry back. From Yorkers control. This is, I believe, the second Battle of St. Albans. She actually does manage to wrest him back from Yorkers control. The Lancastrians win a very rare victory in early 1461. But she can't get back into London, which is the problem. By this point, there's a load of um, fear mongering about the evil queen is coming with all her barbaric Scots and she's going to completely ravish London and burn everything. And it's going to be a complete disaster. So she's basically trying to finagle her way into London, trying to negotiate her way into London when Edward IV comes along and gets himself crown king. Queen ravishing London already sounds like I might have a new historical hero. Um, yes, <laughs> actually going to do it. Even so. It's Didn't just that she was French point. and had Scots in her army, so they're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, my two favourite nationalities. You've um, you've already touched upon this, but let's get a myth crushed. We love a good myth crushing here. <laughs> Did she stab the Duke of York at the Battle of Wakefield? No, she was in Scotland. <laughs> Boo, nobody wants Sorry. your logic, Joanna. We like that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. No, she was in Scotland. She couldn't have done it. She wasn't even there. Can we at least say she would have if she'd had the opportunity? Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, she probably would have done, but she didn't. Not to say that she wasn't happy about it. She, um, what I love about her is she absolutely just refuses to lie down ever. At this point, Edward IV has become king. So at this point, Margaret's in exile again. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yes. Which is a really big one where Edward IV establishes his rule and possibly the single bloodiest battle in English history ever fought. Possibly, the, I think there's something like 20,000 casualties, as some people estimate. Yeah, after this point, she is in exile again in England. Again, going from place to place to place. 
mostly the north, mostly Wales. But again, she's not staying quiet. There's evidence from letters at this point. She's writing to some of her friends in France. She's trying to get support in France. Again, to launch another invasion. She's handling almost everything. Does Henry, Henry go back into another trance? Um, there may be one. It's hard to say after 1461 what his mental state is, really. I think we can say not good. It's probably not great, yeah. Yeah. So she's the centre of things right now, although there are still people willing to support him. So mostly in the Lancastrian heartlands, as they call them, with Wales and the north and Scotland. I mean, there's several places, several castles in England and Wales that hold out for a few years against the Yorkers. There's Olnick. I can't remember that one of the Welsh borders. There's one in Wales that holds out, I think, until 68, 1468, near enough, before it's finally, finally taken. And there's parts of Northumberland don't fully capitulate. So they they stay in some of these places. It's not until 1463, I believe, that she finally returns to France with her son. And even there, she's not quiet. She spends the next few years, again, trying to trump up support for her court. She's living in exile, though, by this point, in the court of the French king, which is Louis by this time. It's not Charles Seventh anymore. It's Louis the... Is it the 14th or the 12th? I get my Louis confused. So, Joanna, Margaret isn't the only interesting woman going on in this household at the moment, is there? She's got a really interesting lady-in-waiting. Can you tell us she about her? She has indeed. She has indeed. I mean, the picture that's on the my front cover, um, there's Margaret is the one in the black hood, but behind her there's another woman, Catherine Val. This is one of her ladies-in-waiting. She's an English woman. She's married to a Lancastrian knight, and she stays with Margaret for her pretty much her entire life. She goes to France with her. She's she's really, really, she's just a devoted friend and lady in waiting. Oh, my goodness, they must have been so close. She's, I mean, there's not a huge amount on her. She didn't do a great deal, but she just sticks with Margaret through thick and thin. She loses her own husband in the Wars of the Roses, but she still sticks with Margaret through thick and thin. Maybe because, like, where else would she go if she's lost exactly it? it's like where else would she go and you know you tend to think maybe ladies in waiting did form quite close bonds of friendship with them um, the women that they served they probably were best best buddies in real life you know <laughs> in real life this isn't a novel but you know they probably were very close friends i think yeah her husband had been one of the household knights or at least very close in henry's household so that was obviously how households got to know each other he she would probably have been appointed to Margaret's household at the time of her marriage or shortly afterwards. Probably the only one who did stay with her. So 1470, there's a final roll of the dice with um, with Henry becoming king once again. How does that go? Ah, yes. <laughs> I think, honestly, Margaret wasn't too... I wouldn't say she was unhappy about Henry becoming king again, but she never trusted the Earl of Warwick from the outset. She was probably very wise not to trust the Earl of Warwick from the outset. So he's come to France to make all these negotiations with the King of France because he wants to um, restore Henry to the throne. She actually refuses to even come until he's until she's got certain promises from him. She won't even appear. She won't even be in the same room as him until she's extracted certain promises from him. Um, she is involved in the negotiations, but in all honesty, the King of France has got more to do with it. And he's also using things for his own purposes. So he'll help the Earl of Warwick, give in an army, help him put Henry back on the throne. But the Earl of Warwick has got to do something for him. 
he's got to attack the Burgundians. Yeah, this this support doesn't come free. She's not too happy about it because, of course, her priority is getting her husband back on the throne, restoring the throne, not so much helping dear old cousin Louis again in, in, in his battle against the Burgundians. Of, of course, they do come to an arrangement in the end. His daughter is betrothed to her son, but it's months before she sails to England. Part of it's bad weather, part of it's political fandangling. Not, it's not necessarily because she doesn't want to, it's because she literally doesn't want to return until he's actually been placed back on the throne. It's not going to be, oh, it's a vague possibility. No, she's not coming back until he's actually back there and until certain conditions are met. There's also a thing that King Louis wouldn't allow her to sail until the Earl of Warwick had attacked his Burgundian enemies. That's probably a safe bet for him as far as he's concerned. Right. Yes. It's like you hold up your side of the bargain first. How much of their um marriage does they actually spend together? For the first few years, quite a long time. So from fourteen forty five to fourteen sixty, they are together for most of the time. There's time there's a period in the late fourteen fifties where she's on her own estates. I mean to be honest with you, in the correspondence that does survive, and there's not a lot of correspondence, they speak quite fondly of each other. There's even something when she's on the run in 1460 that Henry has a special token he will send her when he wants her to come return so that no one so that the Yorkists can't um for, can't trick her into coming under false pretenses and arrest her or harm her and thing like that so they've clearly got these personal messages going on in terms of romance you don't know but there's no reason to suggest that they didn't like each other at least and yeah I'm not the one for the oh Edward wasn't Henry's son. I think he probably was. I don't think she would have been stupid enough to pass off someone else's child as Henry's son, to be honest with you. Though, of course, there were the rumours, but <laughs> rumours are yeah. But most of them are spread by the Yorkists, so that kind of tells you everything you need to know. So how is Margaret remembered? Um, and is it justifiable, the impression we have of her? Well, as they always say, history is written by the winners. And in that case, the winners were the Yorkists. So she was remembered for a lot of time as the evil, wicked queen who was trying to put a bastard child on the throne. There were even there were even ridiculous stories in 1460 that she was planning to murder Henry and marry the Earl of Somerset. That these even got on their way to France. So yeah, she's often remembered as the evil queen who was vicious and immoral and everything a queen should not be. Is it justified? Probably not. In exceptional circumstances, she defended herself. Was she vicious? I think she wasn't doing anything worse than the men were doing. She just kind of thought that she should fight in the same way that they were fighting, fight back in equal terms. Because when all else failed, when the political solution failed, she uh, decided the military solution was the best thing. Do we know much about her physical Margaret of Anjou? I, I just remember her, her appearance. Book, she looks quite weedy and small and unassuming in her pictures. Yeah, I mean, the main one we have is the um, manuscript that was made for her wedding. Um, I don't actually have that on the front cover of my book because I asked them not to do that one. Because that's what every book on Margaret of Anjou has got. That shows her with long, sort of strawberry blonde hair. She's, she's exceptionally small. She's probably quite petite in frame, but you don't really know massively what she looked like. She might have been blonde. She might have had darker hair, even slightly red. Um, she was said to be pretty, but then 
most princesses were said to be beautiful when they married the king. So it's kind of a standard trope. I mean, Yolanda of Aragon, her grandmother, was quite, supposed to have been quite a bit of a stunner. Could you tell us a bit about what kind of sources you found on Margaret of Anjou? Because sources on women aren't always easy to find, slightly easier when they're monarchs. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. Well, one of my favourite sources, actually, was a book I found on the letters of Margaret of Anjou, quite a lot of her transcribed letters. Um, I remember the name of the author of the book. It often eludes me. Let me, In fact, let me get my copy and look back. Yeah, it's a, it's a relatively new book. I think this one only came out in 2020. That one was really useful, sort of to see Mar- what Margaret was doing in her own voice, in a sense. The only problem with a lot of them is that some of them are letters to other people and her response doesn't survive. But in other cases, there are her letters. Of course, there's a standard medieval chronicles and things. But again, they're very standardised. A lot of the time, there's a bit of a trope. And honestly, I think because she was on the losing side, we don't know how much of her correspondence has been lost and destroyed or was revised later on by people who were not very friendly towards her again letters the letters are the best thing with margaret if you can get things actually written by your subject that's a winner you can't always land grants and things like that charters but it's very good i mean some of them are just mundane things like property grants lands and tenants and oh can you please help me someone stole my sheep <laughs> yes there's always, there's always a letter can you help me someone stole my sheep sheep rustling so you've mentioned that she's on the defeated side Uh, she puts the final nail in that what becomes of her in later life so she's basically sold back to france about five years after she's actually sold back to france because edward the fourth needs money i say ransom but yeah she was sold back to louis her cousin because edward the fourth was strapped for cash as he always was. She goes back to live on a lot of her father's lands because her father, René of Anjou, doesn't die until... Oh, he doesn't die until something like 1480. He lives many years. He lives into his well into his 80s. But sadly, yes, he's she's got to live off his charity for a long time because she's got nothing left. She dies, actually, in one of his castles in 1482. This time she's not... She's barely into her 50s, about 52 years of age. Um, in England, she spent some time living with some of her friends, including Alice Chaucer. But she's just kind of passed from post, pillar to post, living at the, at the mercy and charity of other people. It's quite sad, really, the last 10 years of her life. Just before she died, the King of France helped himself to some of her dogs. Just to rub her face in it. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I want them. I also understand that... Um, uh in the french revolution that they uh some revolutionaries scattered her bones they ransacked the cathedral and scattered yeah. her remains how rude um yeah <laughs> i know i know it is rude to be honest with you they did that to quite a lot of people i think john duke of bedford's um tomb was similarly treated so it wasn't necessarily anything personal against her it was just royalty we don't like royalty And of course, she um, has to live the last decade of her life having lost her son as well, because the one dies at Tewkesbury. So she's, yeah, she has lost everything by this point. I mean, they say that she's, that's the thing that breaks her in the end. For for all these years of having this 
excellent resolve of never to lay down and roll over, as you said. At that point, she's just hasn't got anything left. Had she had other children, it would have been different, obviously. And you never know if her son had been properly married to Anne Neville and had had a child of his own, it might have been different. Wonderful. So thank you, Joanna. She certainly is uh, a formidable woman. I like the idea of She-Wolf being a an accolade, so she's my She-Wolf. Yeah, to be fair. <laughs> Might have taken it as a compliment. <laughs> I hope she would have. Remind everybody what the book is called. It is called She-Wolf of France, twice Queen of England. Brilliant. And that is available uh, as of the mid middle of April uh, from Amberley, and we will put it in the History Hacks bookshop as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's all right. And uh, yeah. I think it was high time for a new Margaret biography, so that's why I wrote that. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.